Good morning. Good morning. Man, I need you guys to come down and teach my church how to do that. <clears throat> now, granted, we meet in the evening, and so that might be part of the problem, that by the time we get there and we have so many families, and so parents are just happy to be there and be alive, that uh, <clears throat> they haven't figured out how to respond yet. So um, I was laughing a little bit earlier. Uh, I grew up in a denomination where every single stage had a, you know, had a giant pulpit, and on either side behind the pastor were these two huge chairs looking like thrones. Uh, and so every time the pastor got up there, man, he looked like he looked like royalty. Now, don't get me wrong, everybody in the crowd knew he wasn't royalty, uh, but it looked like it. And so if that was, if you looked like royalty, then I'm honored to look like a Viking between two elks <laughs> and big goblets of wine in front of me. And so this is, this is fantastic. I've never, uh, I've never gotten to preach like a Viking before, so... That's the first. Hey, we're going to be in Romans 8 this morning. Uh, we're going to be in the very last portion, uh, chapter of that, uh, in that chapter. Um, if you're using one of the black Bibles, I believe it's pages 90, uh, 944 and 945. And so we're going to be in Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. Um, there is, uh, I almost thought about getting up here and asking how many, I, I've wanted something settled for a long time. I married a Pittsburgh girl. And so her family, there you go, see, so I'm already getting there. Uh, her family was very clear coming in because, um, and I was hoping not to bring this up, but I'm, I'm a Texas boy, and so there are certain sports teams that come along with being a Texas boy that I'm just for the, just not going to name, and so, because I realize where, I'm a, where I am, uh, and so uh, coming into a, a, a Pittsburgh family, they were very clear about where their sports allegiances lie, um, and I have yet to meet uh, any fans of any Philly teams while in Pittsburgh, now going up and back and forth for almost seven years now, and so uh, I figured that the way it goes in Pennsylvania is it's very divided uh, between if you're in Philly, you just don't root for teams who are black and gold, and if you are in Pittsburgh, you don't root for teams with red or with green, and so I just figured that's how it was, but I was interested as to what happens in central Pennsylvania, and if it ends up being a little bit of a mix of the both, where you got a little bit of the Philly fans and the, 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 the Pittsburgh fans, and so, um, so I'm getting a little nods ahead that there's a little bit of a mixture, and so uh, when it comes to maybe football, there's probably not a lot that we could agree on in this room, but football aside, I think if there's anything we can agree on is that our lives very rarely go according to our plan, ever. Uh, Whether you're the youngest person in the room or you're the most mature person in this room, the wisest, we can all agree that our lives very rarely ever go according to our plan. Like, your year won't go according to your plan, let alone your life. Your month, your week. Some of us, just by the look of us, our our mornings did not go the way in which we planned. Um, I tend to be really retentive about a few things, and one of them is showing up a little bit earlier than than where I'm supposed to be. And so I left this morning from Frederick. It's only about an hour and 15 minutes south. Um, I left to give myself like an hour buffer, because in my mind, I figure even if I show up super early, I can just sit in the car and look like I'm on time, not like some weirdo that shows up an hour early. Uh, but what ends up happening is I'm getting up halfway up 15. There's a huge traffic accident. And the next thing I know, I've been sitting in the same spot for over an hour. And just sitting there going, the guest preacher, <laughs> I don't know if they have a backup plan. I don't know how I'm going to get there. Luckily, I was able to kind of traverse the, the grass median and backtrack a little bit and get around. But I was even chuckling because I was like, this is my opening line, is our lives don't work according to our plan. And the Lord's like, let me give you a really relevant story this morning. (laughs) 
So it was good. So I got to at least run through my sermon quite a few times and tried to take up an offering up and down the lane. Nobody would give me any money. They thought I was a weird homeless guy. But the truth is that none of our lives work according to our plans. And one of the reasons why that is, is suffering. That no matter how we think our lives are going to go, no matter how many things, how, no matter what way we think our year's going to go, our month's going to go, our day's going to go, suffering has a way of just weaving itself into our lives. And in some ways, and not to be all doom and gloom, but in many ways, because I, I think it's, it's, it's the reality that Paul paints right before we get to the verses today, that all of life is suffering. And here's what I, here's what I mean by that, is that, is that, listen, there are people in this room that are going through an intense season of suffering. And maybe that's you. Maybe you're experiencing suffering, and, and all you seem to know right now is suffering. Or maybe you've just had a season where God's just, uh, he's just, he's held back the suffering from you and you haven't gone through any type of severe suffering, but I can almost guarantee that you know someone who is. And so either you're suffering or you know someone who is suffering. And even if you say, well, I don't really fall into those two categories, which I would kind of find hard to believe, you have but just to pick up the newspaper, turn on the radio, turn on the television and not see that suffering is widespread. And so then what happens is, you know, our lives don't go according to our plans because of suffering. And so when suffering begins to enter our door, one of two things is going to happen. The first is that when suffering enters our door, and maybe this is a better way to put it, when suffering enters our door, we preach some type of gospel to ourselves. We either preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the good news that Christ has overcome sin, death, and evil through his own life, death, and resurrection, and he's making all things new, even us. And we preach that gospel, and we hold firm to that gospel, or we preach some other gospel. And, it, and listen, it matters which one we preach. One of my favorite authors, uh, Paul Tripp, always says that, one of, that the most influential person in your life is you. Why? Because there is no one who talks to you more than yourself. There's no one who talks to you more than yourself. Some of us have learned to do that silently. Some of us are still working through that and still look a little weird sitting in Starbucks just going, no one talks to you more than yourself. And so listen, when suffering enters your door, what you say to yourself matters. It matters. Because what you believe about God and what you say to yourself about God in that moment, what you say about Jesus, what you say about yourself, what you say about others, listen, it is incredibly formative. It is incredibly formative. In some ways, probably more formative than what I'm even doing here, preaching the Word of God. It is incredibly formative. And so it matters what it is that we say. And so for most of us, like listen, most of us in this room, especially if you're a follower of Christ or you've been around church for any period of time, like we know enough Bible, right? That we have full confidence in how much God has loved us in the past to forgive us of our sins. And we know enough Bible to know that, that when he comes again and makes all things new, that his love is going to be consummated. So we know enough Bible, but then the question becomes, well, what about now? Like, like pragmatically, what about now, that's sure the gospel past and the gospel future, but what about the gospel right now? And the reason why this is important is because Paul's assumption today in Romans 9 is that between the already of our salvation in Christ in the past and the not yet of our future homecoming, 
that we're going to be, we're going to live lives of suffering. And so the question then becomes, and here's the big question for today. What do we cling to? What do we cling to? What is it that undergirds our faith that can keep us going? And here's what Paul's answer is going to be. Paul says, listen, here's what you can throw your full weight into. Here's what you can lean on with everything. Here's what you can put your full confidence in. It's God's love for you in Christ. And so I realize we're all coming in with something this morning. So what I want to do is I want to take a moment to pray and ask that the Holy Spirit would do a work because I stand before you as a guy who there's no one who needs to hear what I'm about to preach more than me. So I want to pray with a spirit of expectancy that the Holy Spirit would move today because, listen, some of us have heard that God loves us. and Yeah, okay, great. And cognitively, we get that. But for some of us, what we needed to do is to sink down into our hearts and really just begin to... Mm, some, like some of us in this room today just need to feel Jesus' arms wrapped around us and hear the words, I love you. And that's what my prayer is for today. So let me pray and we'll jump in. Lord, thank you for calling us together to worship you. And Lord, thank you for the, for the truth that you've given us here in your word. I pray that as we, um, as we dig in and as we dive into this passage, that Lord, what you would do is that you would use your Holy Spirit in order to um, open up our eyes to the truth of who you are and what you've done through Christ. And that we would walk out of here are people who are, who are truly more in love with you and more in love with one another because, because we realize and have begun to grasp just how deeply we are loved by you. In Christ, it is in your precious name we pray. Amen. So Paul is going to do in these, uh, in these eight verses is that he's going to say that in all in life, the one thing that we can rest in is we can rest in God's love for us in Christ. And he's going to, he's going to explain this because I, I, one thing I love about Paul is that he just has an incredible way of sort of cutting off any excuses or responses you might have where you might go, all right, like, Bliss, I hear what you're saying that God loves me in Christ, but... And what Paul's going to do is Paul's going to anticipate, he's going to anticipate some of those objections that we might have to God loving us, and he's going to sort of answer them. And what I love about Paul is then he gets specific and then he goes, and anything in creation. And so it's sort of that like, um, uh, like I love you times infinity. Like there's just no, I love you more. No, I love you more. I love you times. Like there's just no coming back from that. And so Paul's just gonna, he's gonna kind of walk through these objections. So let's, let's look at these four questions. The first one comes in, in Romans 8 uh, verse 31. Look with me. Paul says, what shall we, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, Paul opens up with an interesting statement. What shall we say to these things? And so anytime you come across something like this in Scripture, it's important to figure out what things is it that Paul's talking about. Uh, because whatever those things are, Paul, what Paul's going to unpack in the second half of verse 31 through 39 leans on that, is built off of that. And so, and so commentators go one of two ways with this. Some say that it's just chapter 8 that he's saying, hey, in light of everything I've unpacked in chapter 8, here's this. And, and then the majority of commentators, and where I tend to fall, is what Paul is summarizing is all of Romans up to this point. Romans chapter 1, 7 and a half. Now, for those of you who are followers of Christ and you've been in church for a while, you understand the gravity of that. And so if you're in this room and you might be a seeker or a doubter, you're not a rent, you had just haven't been around church, you have no idea who Paul is, Romans, like I thought that was, why is this a book in the Bible? Um, uh, 
Paul is, is, is one of the very first church planters. One of the very first, he's one of the apostles. He spends his entire life, at one point was against the church, and now Christ just radically saves him. Uh, he becomes a follower of Christ and then begins to teach and begins to preach and begins to start new churches all over the ancient world. And, to, and what he began to do is he began to write letters to these churches to encourage, to correct. And, and these are the letters that make up the majority of the New Testament. And so when we come to the book of Romans, it's a letter that Paul's writing to the church in Rome, and it's one of the last letters Paul's ever going to write because he's later on going to be put to death by Rome and have his head cut off in the name of Christ. And so what Paul does is Paul begins to unpack everything he believes theologically into the book of Romans. If the Bible is the most important book, then Romans is the most important book in that book, making this letter one of the most important pieces of literature in human history. Because what Paul is going to do is he's going to unpack the mysteries of the gospel. And so I'm going to, as best I can, summarize what all Paul is summarizing. And here's, here's what it is. Paul spends the first seven chapters of Romans unpacking the bad news and the good news of the gospel. The bad news is that sin is in the world, and it's entered the world in two ways. The first is that we've, inha- we've inherited it, that, that, that we're born into it because of Adam's sin in Genesis 3. But not only that, but even if you struggle with the fact of like, I don't know if I inherited it, you still choose it. And so Paul cues us into the fact in Romans 1 that sin has both entered the world through Adam, but you also choose it. You, you choose to be a spiritual criminal before God. He says that sin has entered the world, and because of that, we stand before a God who's created all things, including us. A God who is righteous, which just simply means he's never done anything wrong. But he's also just, which means he cannot be a part of, and nothing uh, nothing that is sinful can stand before him. And so because of that, death has to be dealt out, because that's the only just punishment for sin. And so you and I, we're keenly aware of physical death. We see it all around us, but there's two more types of death that Paul unpacks that come with this. Not only physical death, there's also spiritual death. That you and I are created to be in constant contact with God the Father, but that has been cut off as the result of our sin. You have physical death, you have spiritual death, but you also have eternal death. That the result of it is hell, and it's what is fully deserved because of the weight of our sin. And if that wasn't bad enough, Paul goes into, he says, hey, listen, we've sinned. Death is a result of it. And here's the really bad news. There's absolutely nothing we can do to fix it. That even our best works don't work. He says that's the bad news. But he also goes on to unpack what the good news is, that that God says, hey, I've got to send a substitute. They can't do it on their own. They are powerless before sin. I've got to send someone who can be a substitute in their place. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit get together. The Father comes up with a plan, and they send God the Son, who will accomplish what we could not accomplish, so that the Spirit could apply what we could not take for ourselves. So they send Christ, who is fully God, but also fully man, who goes to the cross and has our sins put on Him, who is punished in our place, but then rises from the dead, as Paul says in Romans, for our justification. God's final stamp of approval on what Christ has done for us. And if that wasn't incredible enough, what he does is then turn to us and go, this is for you. And it's free. Absolute free gift of grace. 
that you have but to receive with the open arms of faith. That's the first seven chapters of Romans. The bad news, but the good news. And so Paul takes a sudden break from just this, just this incredible theological discussion. And he breaks out into something that is almost close to poetry. You could say just breaks out into song. He says, what will we say in light of these things? So here's the first question. If God is for us, who, who can be against us? I love here that Paul doesn't just ask, who could be against us? This isn't Paul kind of like bucking a little bit. This isn't Paul like my father-in-law going, you guys only got five championship rings, we got six, what now? Every Thanksgiving. No, Paul doesn't say who could be against us. What does he say? He includes God. And listen, that makes all the difference. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? This isn't just some guy bucking a little bit. He's saying, no, no, no. We have God on our side. It's, and and what, who is this God? It's the God who uses evil for good. It's the God who, who cannot be outflanked by evil, cannot be outflanked by sin. It's the God who's never weary nor perplexed. It's the God that who, listen, everything God does is for you. Everything. If you get nothing else today, the God of the universe who created all things is for you. You could literally take this verse and just put your name in. God is for bliss. God is for blank. God is for you. Because what Paul wants us to understand in this first question, he says, hey, you want to know what you can throw your weight into? God's love. And how does God's love play out? God's love plays out in that he loves you so much he'll fight for you. He will fight for you. And in the face of suffering, God says, no, that doesn't get to defeat you. Because what the world intends, what the enemy intends for evil, God takes and like nothing else can, makes it good and uses it for our good and for his glory. God fights for us. The second question he asks, it says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Here's, here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, listen, do you want, you want to know the depth at which God is for you? Do you want to know how much God loves you? You have but to look to the cross. You have but to look to the cross to see that what he did there was the most generous gift he could have given us. It was his own son. And I think it's easy when we come to this to go, yeah, but he's God. He knew I was gonna, how it was going to work out. That couldn't have been that painful. Because we're, we're sitting from a human side to say, well, listen, if, if I knew, like, my two-year-old daughter, I love her more than anything in this world. And if I knew I was sending her into a situation where she was going to be killed, well, I'd, I'd be a horrible parent not to protect her from that. And so it's hard to hear that through a human lens and say, but God knew that there was going to be the resurrection, everything was going to be good. And so how, how bad was that for him? And we forget that when you look back at the garden, man and woman being created in his image, that emotions were a very real part of that. 
we have a God who is not awe-emotional. We have a God who the Psalms are very clear, grieves with us, is sorrowed in our suffering. Like Christ crying out on the cross, why have you forsaken me? Running to Psalm 22 so that you and I someday could quote Psalm 23 with confidence. Asking why God had forsaken him and the pain of the... It, Jesus didn't sweat drops of blood to put on a show in the Garden of Gethsemane. There was a real weight and pressure and pain that he went through, not grudgingly, but for you and for me. And Paul says, guys, we have but to look at the cross and how graciously he gave us his son. But what does Paul mean by all things? Because it's easy to take that and go, well, okay, here's the problem. I know God doesn't give me all things because I prayed for that new Camaro and I never got it. And what Paul, and so it's easy to begin to twist and go, ah, see, there's a hole there. Yeah, God gave us the cross, but he's not going to give us all things. And here's what I would argue Paul means by that. Is Paul says, listen, if God was willing to graciously give us his son on the cross, he's going to give us everything necessary in order to make it where we're going. And where are we going? We're going to be with Christ, fully like Christ. And he says, all the grace you need to make it until that point when he returns to take you home, either by taking the breath out of your lungs or returning in the clouds at the trumpet blast, God is going to give you and is giving you more than enough grace to make it to that day. That's grace upon grace. It's God saying, listen, listen, the grace I give you today is built on top of the grace that was left over from yesterday because I gave you way too much. And guess what? The grace I'm going to give you tomorrow is going to be on top of the grace left over from today because I've given you way too much. Grace upon grace, wave after wave of grace. And what God promises is to give us more than we need in order to make it to where we're headed with him, like him. This is the beauty of the resurrection, that if our ends have already been guaranteed, then all the grace we need along the way has been guaranteed as well. Or guess what? We would never make it to the end. We would never make it to the end. Because what's beautiful, what we see in the, in the, in the beauty of the resurrection is that that future grace, the promise of future resurrection with Christ, future grace always guarantees present grace. Always. And Paul says, listen, if it, look at the grace on the cross. He will give you more than enough grace for right now. It's why in the midst of suffering, we don't run from him, we run to him. It means that in the face of suffering, no matter what we're going through, we begin to see it through a new lens. That this is not God sitting up in heaven like an angry father, smacking us around. But as a loving father who says, no, evil is a real part of the world. Suffering is going to be a real part of your life. But my grace will be overwhelming and be lavished upon you in the midst of that suffering. And again, I, I love how Paul asks the question here. It's not, will God not give us all things? No. What does he do? He asks in light of the cross. He who did not spare his own son but gave him for us, how will he also not graciously give us all things? Paul's question of this is anchored in the cross because Paul saw the gift of Christ 
as the greatest gift of all. He saw it as the greatest gift of all. That if anything God could give us, if he were to give us nothing else and only Christ, that was more than enough. I think this is, this is where this hit me in the heart today. Is I don't, my affections are not always aligned in this way. My desires are not always aligned in this way. That if I'm honest, there, there are most days when I don't see the cross as the greatest gift. What I, what I view and treat the cross as is my punch ticket where I should be able to get a different gift. Where I say, God, I know you love me, so why is this happening? How, how long are you going to let this happen? It's a question, like, and it's a very human question to ask. And listen, I would encourage you, it's a very, it's a very godly question to ask. If you read the Psalms, which, which they are God's prayer book for God's people. Like, I, I love the people at Redemption City. They're, they're up to their ears in Psalms, and that's the way I want it. Because if, you know, if Jesus is the picture of the flourishing man, of what we should be attaining, he, he was a Jew, and so the, the Psalms were his prayer book. He, he prayed them. He cried them. He sang them. And so I'm, I'm convicted and convinced that it should be our prayer book as well. But what I appreciate in that is there's a rawness. It's not some sort of like hyper-spiritual, like, well, God's in control. Everything's going to be good. How many times does the psalmist go, how long, O Lord? How long? I am tired. I am weary. You say wave upon wave of grace, but it just feels like wave upon wave of suffering. The psalmist is very real and very honest before God. What I love is that God is very honest to the psalmist in response. He says, remember my faithfulness in the past. Pull from that to have hope for the present. Knowing of where we're headed. That I cried Psalm 22 from the cross so that you could cry Psalm 23 from your bed. And know that it does not fall upon deaf ears. Everything in life for Paul, the starting place was the cross. And what Paul wants us to see in asking this second question is, listen, God provides for you. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain, it doesn't feel like that. It doesn't. That's why going back, it's important what we preach to ourselves. I I know God's fighting for me now, and I know that he provides for me. And, And more than just material needs, which he does, he provides me with more than enough grace than I could ever need to make it through what it is I'm going through. And, and don't, and listen, don't, gosh, don't hear this as some, tor- some form of trumped up spirituality. Because when we go to passages like Matthew 5, who is it that God promises to comfort? Those who mourn, not those who are above desperation. This isn't like, oh, well, I know God provides, I know God fights for me. Don't you know that? Why are you crying? God promises to comfort those who mourn, not those who are above desperation. That we can be very real with our emotions. We can be very real with the God of the universe, knowing that he's working all things together for good. He's fighting for us, and he's going to provide us with more than enough grace. The third question Paul's going to ask, verses 33 through 34, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? 
It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Listen, in the midst of suffering, I'll tell you one of the places I run to very quickly. I deserve this. Of course I would suffer. And what begins to sneak into my mind isn't so much biblical Christianity as it is karma. Oh, I must have done, I must have done something wrong. I must have done something wrong. And what begins to happen is I begin to condemn myself. I begin to condemn myself. I begin to bring charges against myself. Well, bless, if you'd just be a better pastor, if you'd just be a better husband and a better father, this type of stuff wouldn't happen. And I have to imagine, like, this is a very human thing to do because as a pastor, I see it all the time in my people. And so I have to imagine that, that Paul has seen this too, and that's why he wants to cut it off. He says, no, 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 no. The case against you has been closed. And not only that, the charges have been removed. You've been proclaimed innocent. The case is closed. There's no opening it back up. The sins against you, the wrongdoings, the imperfections, the case is, the case is closed. There's, there's no charges that anyone can bring upon you because God has justified you. God is the one who's looked at you and said, no, he's righteous. He's righteous. And listen, not in a way that like, if we had name tags today, and my name is Bliss, but I put on Bill and said, well, I'm Bill. Well, no, you're not. You're actually Bliss. Right? That'd, be, that'd be weird, but I think sometimes our view of justification is the same. Well, God just slapped a new label on me. God has made you new. You are in Christ. When he looks at you, he sees Jesus he loves you as much as he loves Jesus. Like do, you, like, do you get that? When he looks at you, brother and sister, his love for you, his posture towards you is the same exact posture he has for the second member of his trinity, Christ. We no longer stand condemned. No one can bring a charge against us. Why? Because we're in Christ. Now, Paul, later on, uh, a few chapters back, he'll, he'll look at this line of thought and go, now, 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 don't run to, whoa, whoa, I'm justified. I can live however I want. He goes, by no means. Why? Because if you hear that, that he looks at you and sees Christ, he loves you as much as he loves Christ. You know what that does for me? That makes me want to follow him at any cost. Because I've never, ever, ever experienced a love like that. An unconditional, chargeless, condemningless love. And that begins to fuel our, (laughs) I'm going to follow you. And what does this innocence lead to? Complete and utter acceptance in Christ. And listen, the, the, the devil wants us to feel condemned. He wants us to forget what Christ has done for us. And listen, there are, mm, there are some of us in this room, myself included, that we need to repent for joining with the enemy in that. 
of either condemning ourselves or condemning unrighteously one another. Because that doesn't mean not calling out sin, because sometimes grace is a little gritty. That's why Matthew 18 is in there. Sometimes we've got to call out sin. And so the, the importance of community. Hey, did, did, did you realize that you were sinning? You need to repent. So when I say condemning one another, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about unjustly condemning, where we're looking at ourselves saying, you're not, you don't deserve to be loved by him. Or there aren't our, our posture towards others, our, our, our words with others, is one where we say, ah, you don't deserve to be loved either. And it's a very real thing that some of us need to repent of. Because what we have is complete and utter acceptance in Christ. Listen, th- things like shame, things like insecurities have their root in not believing this. Because here's, here's the question that shame, something like shame is fundamentally asking. If I am fully known, will I still be loved? That's what shame asks. In moments of shame, gosh, if you see me for who I really am, will you still love me? Things like insecurities, gosh, if, if, I, if I'm myself, if I am who I am, Will I still be accepted? And the answer in Christ is an overwhelming yes. What Paul wants us to understand is there's no need to try to justify yourself. You have been fully, completely justified in Christ, which forms the heart of God's love for you. The fourth and final question he asks In verse 35 through 36, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 36, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And again, most of us know enough Bible to go, what separates us from the love of God? Nothing. But if we take a look at how we often live, our lives from time to time might actually say something completely different. That we feel loved only when things go well, or that uh, we only extend love when things go well. Why didn't you love that person? Well, you don't know how bad I have it right now. Hmm. We know, all right, yeah, I've heard it before, God loves me. But then Paul begins to say, yeah, but here are the things that are going to try to rip you away from that. And they're going to try, but they're not going to be able to. He even pulls from Psalm 44. That's the, that's the quote in there. For, our, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And what, it's, a very, uh, it's a very realistic picture he paints of life, that it's as if life is one big slaughterhouse. And some of you can relate to that. No matter what happens, I run into a dead end. I am surrounded all the day long by suffering and pain, either mine or family members. And life looks less like a pasture and more like a slaughterhouse. For some of us in the room, that, that's, that's a, that is the reality. And even as Paul quotes Psalm 44, the big point of Psalm 44 is that God's people suffer and can't always make sense of the suffering. That, ah, it's one of the most frustrating things for me as a pastor, if I'm honest. I sit before countless people who are suffering, who are looking to make sense of it. And in the moment, saying God loves you, worked all things together for good, isn't that comforting? 
And they're looking for any reason. Why is this happening? And I don't, I don't have one. I don't have one. I can just simply love you and comfort you and point you back to the cross. Paul, Paul paints a very bleak picture, but he does that in order to open, up, open us up to the truth that makes a difference. The gospel, that's 37 through 39. He, he makes sure the bold tastes bold. Uh, my wife and I went to, somebody gifted us for our honeymoon, a trip to Portugal. And so before that time, I was drinking, I'm not proud of it, I was drinking some really um, sugary drinks at Starbucks. Like extra pumps of syrup. Oh my gosh. I should have had like riding boots and a puffy vest on. <laughs> so he got that. Um, so we get over to Europe and it turns out they don't have those types of drinks. When you ask for coffee, their regular coffee is espresso strength. And if you want something like sweet, they give you like a cinnamon stick, which is really fancy, and like a little packet, like a little sugar cube to put in there. So I spent 10 days drinking incredibly bold coffee. So when we get back to the States, the first thing I do is go to Starbucks and get my regular drink. What do you think happened when I took a sip? Couldn't drink it. Way too sweet. Had to throw it in the trash and go back and just get a black coffee, and I've never turned back. Nothing about Starbucks recipe had changed. I had been exposed to the boldness and the bitterness, and what it did is it heightened my taste buds to taste what was sweet. So when Paul lays a picture, it says life is often like a slaughterhouse. It's incredibly bitter. But what it does is it makes way for the sweetness of verses 37 through 39. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will separate us from the love of God. He admits, listen, life's going to throw you down. It's going to bloody you. It's going to back you into the corner. But you know why you're never going to fall? You know why you're able to stand up not as a victim, but victorious? Not because of your love, but because of his. Because you can throw your full weight on the love of God and it will hold. No matter what faces you, you have the love of God that is absolutely certain in Christ. Wave upon wave of grace. Wave upon wave of grace. And it is this certainty in the love of God. Listen, this is how God made Gosh, it's how he makes heroes out of ordinary sinners. It's how he creates a new community like the church. It's why when the world comes in, the, the shootings that just happened in Charleston just a few months ago, to watch the media's bafflement at a church, members of that church who had lost pastor and lost family members say, we forgive you. I remember watching a CNN reporter go, I don't know what to do with that. It's a love that baffles the world because it's a love that's not of the world. Is life often hard to bear? Yes, and yet we move forward not as victims, but as what? Victors. Because we understand that our lives are simply the vehicles God's taking us to get us to glory. Paul says, hey, God fights for you. He provides for you. He justifies you. But he loves you. 
God's posture toward us at all times, in all ways, even if we don't understand his love. Always. He is constantly facing you in love. Listen, he turned his back on his son so he would never have to turn his back on you. What incredible love that is. There's nothing we can compare it to. It's an unconditional, all-powerful, sin-shattering, grace-filled, blood-soaked, freely given, lavished upon, beautiful love. Will we always feel loved? No. But that is why we look for where that love, we look to where that love rests in Christ Jesus. And what will begin to happen is as his people become more and more aware of the reality of his love for us, it creates within our lives and our communities a place that is so full of grace that there's no need for masks, there's no need for posturing toward one another because we are a people who have begun to understand just how much God loves us. And it will naturally begin to change the way in which we love one another. Because he loves you. Christ died for you, not the you you try to be. Not the you that you put up there. Not the false self. The, the man or the woman who's got it all together. No, he died for the mess. And he knew you were a mess when he died for you. That is the love of God in Christ for you. Father, you, gosh, you, you sent Christ and you sent your spirit so that we would be able to cry out, Abba, Father. And even in that, being able to call you Abba, there's an incredible amount of love. There's an incredible amount of love. Christ, thank you for loving us so well, loving an imperfect people. And Holy Spirit, thank you for helping us believe that. We can't believe it on our own. It's way too good to be true. But Spirit, that's, that's the type of business you're in. Taking what is, too good, what is too good to be true and making it true in our lives. And as we move now into a time of celebrating the sacrament that you gave us, Lord, I pray that as the bread and the wine touches all five of our senses, so would your gospel and your love for us that we would be surrounded and consumed. In Christ, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, we're going to come now to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Um, it's one of the two sacraments that was instituted by Christ Jesus. And this, this sacrament is an acknowledgement that the body was broken, the blood was poured out for us. Uh, God desires for his people to be a remembering people, and we forget a lot of stuff. And so one of the reasons why he gave us the Lord's Supper was so that every week we could remember the good news of the gospel. The bad news, but the good news. We know from reliable testimony of scriptures, as Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians 11, that on the night before Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said this, this is my body, broken for you, eat this in remembrance of me. He also took the cup in the same way after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you do this in remembrance of me. And so at this time, we're going to invite all people who have placed their faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior and have been baptized into a local church to receive communion with us. You don't have to be a member of this church or any particular denomination to celebrate, but if you're still considering what it means to follow Jesus, if you're still asking questions about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, let me encourage you not to participate in this. This is a table that God has laid for his children. Because part of what we're doing in celebrating this, this is not just something we do. This is not a snack after service. 
This is a proclamation that we believe the body that was broken and the blood that was poured out. So let me encourage you that if you're not, if you're a seeker or a doubter, you're not a follower of Christ, that what you receive today is not these elements, but Christ. The Jesus we talked about. Because listen, Paul opens up that passage with saying, in light of these things, the good news and the bad news of the gospel. Which means that everything following that, unless you're a follower of Jesus, doesn't count. But it's really good news that we would invite you to be a part of today. So here's how we celebrate the Lord's Supper here at the church. Uh, the musicians are, gonna go, are going to begin playing the music in a moment. Uh, you can take a moment to prepare, prepare yourself, confessing your sins to God, and then during any point in the song, you're free to come up and receive the elements. Simply tear off a piece of the bread, which is gluten-free, um, and you can dip it in the cup. Um, the uh, wine is available in the taller blue goblet, and the juice of, is available in the shorter brown goblet. Parents of children and Liberty Kids are in the nursery. You're welcome at this point to, to pick them up and, and, and bring them back in for the second half of our worship. And so let me pray over these elements, and then we can receive communion. Lord, we do not presume to come to this table. You are merciful, Lord, and, and we do not presume to come to this table trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same, Lord, who postures whose posture toward us is always one of mercy, is always to show us grace. Grant us then as we come to this table to remember the depths to which you are willing to go to to love us and remind us that we are given more than enough grace for every step of the way. In Christ Jesus' name we pray, amen. These are God's gifts for God's people. You can now come.